Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. show number 59 but this is irrelevant because what we're making today is an Agatha Christie special here in Devon we're sat in Topsham on the River X and it is spectacular the light is just lifting on to the east as we look out towards the sea is that the east yeah it is <laughs> well actually no it's the south isn't it I mean what am I talking about it's the south uh, but the clouds are lifting and it's been a glorious weekend down here in uh, Devon. And why are we here? Well, we're here to celebrate the life of Agatha Christie because she was born in Torbay and she uh, spent, you know, most of the, uh, well, quite a few of the significant moments of her life were here in Devon. And it is also the home of the Agatha Christie collection held by Exeter University Special Collections. And, uh, that's where we both went to university, so we've come back. But we ought to introduce ourselves yes. uh, more formally. So who we are? Well, I'm Adrian Hobart. And I'm Rebecca Collins. Together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers, of the following genres inspired by Agatha Christie. Suspense. Crime. Mystery. And thrillers. And she really was, and uh, still remains, the queen of those four genres, really. And in fact, she, in many ways, uh, the whole police procedural thing was you know along with conan doyle created by agatha christie yeah, effectively they are the king and queen of crime and you know amateur sleuthing and all that sort of thing <laughs> so we went to the collection we'll get to that in a moment um but later we'll be hearing from some of our hobeck authors uh, talking about how they've been influenced by agatha christie and we'll also be hearing from terry nixon rd nixon's who, who has her Second book out with Hobeck later this week. Yes, fair game. It publishes uh, tomorrow as this podcast goes live. But it's been an emotional weekend for us because, you know, Rebecca and I met here at Exeter University umpteen years ago. Uh, losing track now of how many it is. But uh, so that's significant. And coming back to campus as we did on Friday to go and visit the special collection where we saw the correspondence between Agatha Christie and her literary and financial agent uh, was fascinating. But, you know, lots of memories flooding back. I mean, admittedly, to some extent, you couldn't recognise some of it because so much has changed. Yeah, it's a real hodgepodge of of the sort of pockets of buildings that look familiar or even within the same building. Parts of the building are the same, but it's 
got all these sort of modern features, either internally or externally. It was very strange. It was, it was. Uh, we've got a helicopter joining us at the moment. We've got seagulls flying around us. Uh, we've got uh, the old jogger jogging past. Yeah, so that's, those are the sort of the interruptions that we're getting. There's a lovely dog coming coming uh, past oh, us. going to go gooey now. I'm very gooey. Very, very gooey indeed. I don't think that helicopter's going to leave us necessarily in the moment. I don't know. And it seems to be doing a long, low sweep. It's the, uh, I think it's the Devonair ambulance, which we contributed towards yesterday. Uh, but anyway, let's get back to, to Agatha Christie. So she was born here in Devon in 1890. Uh, she met her first husband, Archie Christie, at a, uh, an evening event uh, on the uh, eve of the outbreak of, of World War one in fact it might even have been during world war one but anyway um she met him in exeter and uh, it's quite natural i think that uh, the business correspondence that she exchanged with her agent from 1938 through to roughly her uh, when she passed away uh is kept at exeter university and it, you know it is fascinating because it reveals as we'll hear in a moment some extraordinary insights into the level of control she tried to exert on all of her work, uh, especially when it started to be passed on to Hollywood to make films of. And also her, well, I, I put it down as something of a neurosis about money. But as we'll hear from um, Annie Price when we speak to her in a moment, there were many, many times when money was a really big issue for Agatha Christie. Now, this is a woman who, to date, has sold two billion books worldwide. Um, <laughs> Clearly, she was in the tens of millions. Even early in her career, she'd, she'd reached those sort of figures. And the money was flowing in. But so was the interest from the tax authorities. As, and uh, as we'll discuss, lots of other issues with, with money and, and you know, neuroses around that. So we've uh, been given special opportunity to uh, read out some of the special extracts from these, from these letters. But uh, let's get to, to speaking to Annie Price. Annie Price is... Uh, uh, the curator of the Agatha Christie collection at Exeter University's library. And they also have many other special collections, including Daphne, Daphne de, Maurier, de Maurier, yeah. who, of course, is, is, is local to this neck of the woods in the southwest of England. And Ted Hughes as well. And Ted Hughes as well. So really fascinating. And those things are open to the public. If you wish to go and ask to see stuff, go ahead. It's, it is fascinating. But let's speak to Annie Price. This really is surreal, isn't it? We're back at Exeter University. It's like stepping back in time. Well, it literally is, because in a moment we're going to go through some of the, one of the most uh, celebrated uh, items in the Exeter University Library canon, which are some of the letters of Agatha Christie and the correspondence with her agent. But um, it's just weird for both of us to be here, because just a few metres away is the Robra reading room, where at the very last minute I did all my cramming for my exams, and no doubt you did it with great methodical... <laughs> Precision. I wouldn't go that far, but I, I used to love going to the Robo reading room because I loved the smell of it, and I'd sit there all day with my essay I was writing, and it was so peaceful. I loved it. So, yeah, I hope we can get <laughs> go and have a peek. We'll have a peek in a moment. We've just been to the bar where I spent many a happy hour, in fact, many two hours, too many hours there. Uh, and when it came to the main university library, which is still proudly standing over the campus, uh, I had a very vexed relationship because <laughs> I ran up one of the biggest bills in the history of the library, I had a book which I thought I'd lost, and I just didn't want to come and declare that I'd lost it. And by the end, I paid £150 in library fines, which in 1994 is a lot of money. So uh, 
I never had any library finds. I was really good. You, you were. Anyway, <laughs> we're here to have a look at the Agatha Christie collection, which is held here uh, in the special collections area of the old library. And Annie Price joins us. Uh, it's a real honour to be here with you. And thank you so much for spending some time with us. Because when I saw that that was available, that you held this collection, I said, well, this is perfect for a podcast which deals with crime writing. So here we are. Well, thank you for having me. Now, I'm really delighted to uh, to show you and your and your listeners through the medium of podcasts um, today some of the Christie letters that we hold here. It's fantastic. Now, let's, before we get into the letters, let's establish why they would be here. Because Agatha Christie had a and well, she was born in the county of Devon. Uh, she met her first husband here in Exeter at a dance, I believe, uh, during the war. Uh, and uh, or at least they got married during the First World War, this is what we're talking about. And things didn't go too well with Archie, uh, eventually, but we're talking about letters here that deal with her correspondence when she became a big author. Now, she first published in just after the First World War, 1920, I believe. Uh, yes, in 1920, her very first novel uh, featuring Poirot um, appeared, yes. And some of the... Uh, motivation to write a Belgian character was down to the fact that she'd been nursing in Torbay, where she was born. She was nursing Belgian soldiers from the front. Uh, I think in in Devon in general, we yeah, there were quite a few Belgian refugees, so it's it's, it's possible. We're not entirely sure, but um, yes. In terms of your paper trail here, though, in front of us, we're in the special collections room, and it's it's very smart nowadays. Um, the place is so modernised. We have um, some full-scap envelopes with some of the precious correspondence, beautifully protected. Um, I'm really excited for this. We're going to what we're going to do, listeners, is go through the Agatha Christie collection here in a thematic way. Some of these these have been uh, cleared by the. Is it Agatha Christie Limited or the Trust? I can't remember who the body are, who sort of look after her affairs. Um, well, the, the Agatha Christie estate. So, yes, I'd like to take this opportunity to, to thank them for granting us permission to, to um, quote extracts from the letters. It's, uh, yeah, a real privilege. It is, it is. And so we're going to, to, first of all, look at that, establishing that relationship with her agent. Now, these letters start, um, although she was with the agency from 1922, we're talking about correspondence from 1938, so just prior to the first, Second World War, of course. Um, and she went back into nursing. That's a little spoiler there. Uh, during the Second World War. But, um, yeah, so th- this is, she's well established with the agency, but this is the first time that we see these letters uh, so what, what have we got to, to, to kick off with? Right, so we're going to start off with uh, a letter in which she discusses changes to uh, One, Two, Buckle My Shoe, which is a Poirot um, novel. I love it. So what we're looking at, so it's, it's double-space type. Um, <laughs> now, it, I don't from, know. Uh, from Greenway House as well. Uh, yeah, yeah now Greenway House is, we're going to visit that as part of this podcast, we hope. Uh, that's down near Dartmouth. So again in Devon, that was her holiday home. Mm-hmm. Uh, but her principal home towards the end of her life was in Oxfordshire. Is that right? Uh, yes, I think she owns several properties. Um, she also spent a lot of time um, travelling abroad, especially with her husband, uh, Max Malawan, in um, you know, places like Iraq on... On, um, on digs. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, he was an archaeologist, he so second archaeologist, husband. Yes. So she, she wrote under her first married name. She did. It was Archie Christie that she married in the 19, First World War. 1914. 1914, right, the outbreak. Mm-hmm. And just to put that in context... Her mother, who, I mean, her father had died quite when she was quite young, 
and left the family in some penury and, and you know, difficult financial state. Her mother was a key influence on her life, yet she, she actually turned against her by marrying Archie, a man that she thought was unsuitable because he was too good-looking and was going to wander. And guess what happened? Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> but, that's, but that's by the by. But here we are. So let's have a look. Um, what I love about it, so you know, it's got that, that type that you expect from a document mm. of that period, the, the paper quality. But it's, it is signed, rather than Agatha Christie, she's signing in her married name. Yes, uh, Agatha um, Malawan, and also she's uh, addressing it to dear Mr. Cork. So um, Edmund Cork is her literary agent at Hughes uh, and Massey um, uh, Company, um, her literary agent here in the UK. Um, so and at this time, so so in later letters you'll see she addresses them to dear Edmund, but here at this time they're still it's quite a formal yeah. formal relationship. Um, so yes, yeah, dated April the eighteenth, nineteen forty. And, uh, yes, so she discusses um, changes that she's made to one, two, buckle my shoe. She says, have spent some miserable da- days tinkering at this. I think it is all right now. Have altered the end, written in a dissertation on murder by Poirot, addressed to Blunt and pointing straight at him so that hardly anybody can miss it. And have dragged the war in neck and crop all over the place. Brilliant. And I love the ending as well. Yours in haste and rather a bad temper as a result of fiddling with this book. I do hope they've satisfied, they're satisfied <laughs> as I want the money. Here we go. That. I think uh, there may be a bit of a theme emerging with the money because um, I, in preparation for this interview, I, I watched a documentary which was mentioning that in 50 or so of her plots, money was the motivation for the, for the murders mm. um, and for the the crimes that she she described and that you know some people have sort of extrapolated that from that period where she grew up you know before the age of 11 and her father passing away he spent money quite liberally around the Torbay area their lovely house they were down at the yacht club and all that sort of thing and then bang you know his investments went bad he died when she was 11 and, and things got a bit tough so I think money might have well, clearly a motivation as she mentions it here and yet she's well established she's been publishing for 20 years absolutely but yes um, sort of financial concerns do um, do appear in these letters sort of consistently for I think I think throughout the collection um, particularly um, because of matters relating to tax right so, so we're talking about a tax rate which was really high I mean obviously mm-hmm. during her perhaps in her lifetime, most popular period, in, you know, she was selling Casquillians of books in you know the 1960s and 70s, and the tax rate was on 95 percent. I mean, you, you did economics. I you're, did you're... do economics here, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I know all about that, yeah. So yeah, so she needs the money. I mean, that's it's extraordinary. In 1940, I think at, in especially in this sort of period of this letter, um, particularly, she was very worried about um, tax matters relating to. Um, America, because yeah. um, until 1938 she had been classified as a non-resident alien author and tax on the sale of her copyrights was only payable in the UK. Um, but then in 1938 uh, things changed and the American revenue authorities began to investigate whether Christie actually uh, was required to pay American tax on the sale of American copyrights, going all the way back to 1930. Oh, boy. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> and, and in this time, she received no revenue from serialization sales in America um, until the matter was settled in 1948. Wow. Um, and at this time, British income tax and surtax was very high due to um, uh, financing the war. And then in 1948, when the settlement was reached in America, 
um, in the UK, tax authorities then tried to stake a claim on the residue of her American income that had been throw, uh, frozen, and they fought her for it until the end of 1954. So it was, this wow. really kept going for a long time. So um, she had basically 16 to 18 years of fighting the tax authorities mm-hmm. in both sides of the pond. Yes, and in uh, sort of the, this, this situation, they tried to resolve it by, in 1955, they created Agatha Christie Limited, so um, she was employed as, a, or as, as an employee of, of the company to produce novels, and she received a wage, and that meant that less money was going to the government because the company would pay profits um, at the standard. Um, well, it's not dissimilar to what, what we, you know, go into our own tax mm. affairs, but that's essentially <laughs> what we're doing with our company. You know, we, we, are, we take away, we're supposed to take a wage. Um, and, uh, yeah, you, you know, you pay on 22% corporate tax rate on the profits mm-hmm. so it's a lot you know that's it's tax efficient so similar things with mm-hmm. Agatha Christie Limited but that's fascinating so that must have gnawed away at her throughout the time and um, obviously she was prolific throughout this period but she I mean as I mentioned um, she went back to dispensing medicines and, and working uh, as a nurse during the war as she had done in the first world war and and one of those interesting corollaries to that was the fact that she's so expert her expertise in in what can kill people with poison <laughs> came from dispensing Absolutely. it's amazing yeah. it's amazing you know so so many aspects of her life just fed into the writing absolutely yeah yeah so this relationship that's formal at this point and it, it develops mm-hmm. a little later so let's have a look at the yeah. ne- next letter i mean I, I think it really became a sort of lifelong friendship mm. and uh, edmund cork um sort of handled so many sort of different aspects of her affairs not only her literary career um but also uh, you know which which included sort of uh, uh managing the rights to sort of yeah. translations and theater adaptations the film adaptations um but also um you know handling sort of matters relating to tax um her tenants um <laughs> you know um <laughs> Uh, um, arranging sort of travel, mm. a- accommodation, um, all kinds of things. It's 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 a it's analogous with you know how a football agent would act for their client. Because mm. I've worked in my previous job in BBC Sport, and when you meet top stars, uh, they would phone their agent while they're. I mean, for instance, they were working for us over in you know covering an event. They've just retired from football, but they're still treating themselves as if they're players, and they would. Get, phone up their agent in London, say, find us a restaurant in Brazil, <laughs> stuff like that. And it's just, this relationship is very, very similar. And they would sort every aspect of their lives was, was done handled by the agents. Yeah. But I think there was real affection there as Good. well. They were, they, yeah, I, th- I think it was actually uh, a friendship and that it, you know, such a lifelong friendship. I think he, he was a very important person in her life. Yeah, some stability Indeed. there. Wow. Okay, let's have a look at the, the next letter then. Okay. So um, these letters discuss the new novel Hickory Dickory Dock and sort of reservations um, over the title. So we begin with a letter um, from the 25th of April from Dodmead and Company, who are Christie's um, publishers in the, in the US. Um, and, they, and they're asking for permission to publish the novel under the title Hickory Dickory Death. And I, I think... It's because um, Hickory Dickory Dock isn't really known as a nursery rhyme oh, I see. in America. And there's this, yeah. this 
um, I mean, that's a debate that we have with our mm. with our authors that we, you know some go with the English idioms as, as and it's not necessarily something that's going to appeal to an American audience. The same with covers, where American audiences expect a certain type of cover for a mystery, compared to what we do in this in this country, and you know it catches you out all the time. Um, but you but, can you can understand that because if it, if Hickory Dickory Dock doesn't mean anything in America, they just they, what you know they want a, an explanation. Hickory Dickory Death, yeah, Hickory Dickory Death. <laughs> yeah, uh, and they rather like that, and then. I think a couple of letters later, I've got another one. Oh, yeah. This one's um, from Harold Ober Associates, who are uh, Christie's literary agent in, in America. Um, and they're also uh, also agreeing that um, to the title Hickory Dickory Death, and, um, and Ober hopes that that's all right with Christie. So what, what she actually, what, what Agatha Christie actually thought about it, we're not entirely sure. There's a lot of letters around this subject, aren't there? Yeah. I mean, you know, we thought we were bothered by authors with, with, with the emails. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? It's tr- because this must have uh, spanned a much longer period of time than me emailing backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards with we're, we're still dealing with the same month. It's month, <laughs> month of May 1955, and it's been going to and fro. And so we get to this point here now. So Edmund Cork is, um, is agreeing... To, uh, to change the title in America. Uh, or, or no, he's... Um, so Edmund, Edmund Cork is, mm-hmm. is confirming that Agatha Christie agrees to change the title yes. um, for the American uh, audience. Um, she may agree to change the title for the UK as well. Um, her UK publisher would like to, but Christie has not yet agreed. But we, we know that Hickory Dickory Dock was published under that title here in the UK, so yes. she didn't... She no. must have put her foot down there, I think. I'm glad she did. I think it's a great title. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's brilliant. So that's just uh, an, an example of how some be... of these negotiations sort of to and fro across yeah. various sort of. Um, I'm just so struck by the colour of the paper. It's nice and bright. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it it you know it it looks as if it was you know possibly even typed out five been, years ago. Well, they've been <laughs> not, preserved not, so well as not well, haven't they? So. Yeah, that, I mean that's that, that's what we do here. So we want these um, yeah, these letters to be as available as possible. But we do um, we keep them in sort of temperature controlled um, strong rooms um, and and look after them. We put them in these acid free um, folders and, yeah. and and it really is to preserve it so that um, people can continue to come here and look at these letters um, as long as possible. Do you have um, many people who request to come and look at the letters then? We do. It's one of our most popular collections, and and certainly, I think uh, at the moment we we had uh, two years ago. Obviously, there's, there was the anniversary yes. of uh, the mysterious affair at Styles, her first novel first book, yeah. being published. Um, so yes, certainly, I think consistently, it's it's a really requested collection and and very popular. And despite the fact, I mean, you know, a, a lot of the letters, it's you know, it's quite a dry, mm. dry, dry subject matter. Occasionally, you get. Um, you get a little bit of humour, a little bit, you know, or a bit of insight into to Christian her personality. But actually, you know, the things that they're discussing, you know, rights, and it's not always the most interesting. But it does, you know, this was a huge part of her life, and mm. um, yeah, it really does provide a lot of insight into the her, her literary career. So. Yeah, and, and and her psych, you know, psychopathy at the time, I suppose if that's the right word. But I think also from our perspective as publishers, it's interesting to see. Um, the, the sort of types of correspondences that took place 
how many years ago are we now? Seventy years ago. Yeah, seventy. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. there's actually the similarities I think are more striking than the differences. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, we agonise over titles, but also the minutiae of contracts, and uh, we were doing that only this week. Yeah. Hello, Ray Sargent here, author of the forthcoming Hobeck title, Her Deadly Friend. I'm very envious of the Hobeck team going to the Agatha Christie archive because I'm a fan of many of her books and I'd say she's influenced me as a writer in that I always try and start with the plot. She gave her readers terrific twists and I try to keep that in mind and work backwards from the end. Among Christie's many ingenious plots, three stand out for me. One is Murder on the Orient Express for its thought-provoking moral dilemma. Then there's Death on the Nile for its intriguing culprit. But best of all for me is the ABC Murders for its psychological manipulation of the police and also of a hapless innocent. It was written in 1936, but the plot has a modern feel. And I'm always in awe of the fact that she wrote all her plots without a word processor or the internet. Have a wonderful time at the archive. Bye. So we're going to 1964, 6th of April. So this is a typescript letter from Edmund Cork to Agatha Christie. Um, regarding some comments and points about the clocks, uh, or the the novel, the clocks, um, you know, it's it's perhaps not, perhaps not the most interesting letter. I just think it's interesting, um, just sort of having. So we've got one letter from from Edmund Cork, sixth yeah. of April. One letter from Christie, um, April the fourteenth, uh, again from Greenway House, and they're just discussing these changes. He's he's giving her some of the points. Um, so things about questions about sort of characters hearing the clock striking, characters using a telephone in the post office late at night, um, and whether two houses in a crescent would have backed onto one another. Just really sort of minute details, mm. really. Yeah, but it's that thing that we do. This We were doing it in the car down here, trying yeah. to tighten up, making sure that there's nothing that's misleading the readers, because that's part of the brand, isn't it? That she leaves the clues there, but not the... Mis- you know. And red herrings are fine, but when it's just you know, a clash of information, say. You know, she says one thing earlier in the book and says another thing later. Yeah. That's death. Takes you out of the book immediately. No, that's exactly the sort of thing that's, uh, that's if happening. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll read this, yeah. this, this yeah. extract then. So, uh, from this letter. This is important as it looks like a deliberate false clue. Possibly the easiest way would be to alter page 22 as follows. I can tell you exactly what the time was. My cuckoo clocked cuckooed three times as I came to the gate. I can hear it from the road. Um, and then she writes later, uh, I think that doesn't matter since you say there was late-night post offices, but if you'd like, on page 226, Mrs. Rival could, after hesitated at a call box, then walked on, pausing now and then till she came to another call box. So, <laughs> so that is just like the conversations we had on the way in the car when we were talking about a book, isn't it? It is exactly it. Mind you, we were getting a little bit more sort of elaborate because I was going, ah, we've got to kill them, and then they've got to be, you know, there's got to be a trail of blood for that and this and the other. Um, it's, this is really, really tiny little details. But I suppose 
I mean, one of the enduring fascinations of these books is that people still go over them with a fine tooth comb trying to find inconsistencies. And she was aware that that's what the, the readers were going to behave like. Yeah, and, and I think she, you know, I think you can really tell that she's rea- responding really positively as well to these, to these um, corrections and, um, and, you know, trying to find creative ways to, to, to change the plot so that her, you know, her publishers are happy with the... That's interesting, isn't it? Because you'd think with her, her, you know, as the world's number one crime writer at that time in the 1960s, unquestionably the queen of crime writing mm-hmm. um, and generating huge amounts of money at this point, the power she should have had at that point over, you know, basically people that she's paying to represent her and work with her, um, she doesn't take that approach. She, she shows respect, um, to some extent, like all authors do, a little bit of vulnerability, I think. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's refreshing to see that somebody who'd been writing for uh, publishing for 44 years by this point was prepared to listen mm. to advice. Absolutely. Uh, and also what struck me is that she, had, she corrected a typo in the letter, and I love that. that little, little strikeout <laughs> with, in, in biro. Yeah, that's right. Um, yes, Agatha Christie, I think that says. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I mean, so, so easy to make a mistake on a typewriter, isn't it? So yeah. Especially in those days. I mean, you know, we, we, you know, I, I, I used to despair when I was trying to write my first books, age seven, on a typewriter. You know, spend more time with Tipex and um, and cover-ups and stuff like that. Amazing, amazing. That's fascinating. It's beautiful, and to see her own handwriting, her signatures, time after time, not not noticeably changing at all. It was very established then. I have actually deliberately chosen mostly typescript uh, letters for you because yes. um, her handwriting, it's, it's not terrible, but it's not the easiest to read. Um, but, see mine. But no, it is, it is lovely <laughs> to have... Uh, Did she write handwritten manuscripts or was it, was it typescript? Ooh, um, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, because that's not obviously the... the, the, the foundation of this collection this is more about the business correspondence but yeah. i do wonder I, I, I think i saw in a documentary there was david suchet was given a copy of her autobiography and it was uh, in a loose uh, it was a, an a4 file a couple mm. of them handwritten oh handwritten yeah, yeah i think so i think so that would make sense mm. and now 1966 so, now. so two and a half years later yeah and the 31st of December, so New Year's Eve. Oh, right. And actually, we have got... Uh, this is the one manuscript letter, and I find it actually not, not too bad to read, actually. Yeah. Um, and it's, it is really interesting. It's... Um, so, yes, 31st of December, 1966. Um, so, and it really mostly relates to her need for more control mm. um, sort of over her works. Mm. So she begins wishing um, Edmund Cork a happy new year and then launches into quite a passionate plea for for more control over her works and especially over actions of her publishers and and others in regards to publicity isn't that interesting so let's just put this in context she's 76 at this point Mm. Uh, and yeah she's got tired of of being deferential to her it's interesting we were just saying you know she's been deferential two years earlier and now something's Changed. Yeah, so um, I read the extracts? Yeah, absolutely, so it's very interesting. We've got some extracts from this letter. Um, I've got to have more strict control over the idiotic and very annoying things that my publishers and others seem to take upon themselves to do. So, yeah, there's a lot of passion in, in that statement. My books are written for adults and always have been. 
I'm not just performing a performing dog for you all. I'm the writer, and it's misery to be ashamed of oneself, really, for what I haven't asked or, for, or wanted. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Is, um, so I think um, on the second page, she sort of describes how um, I think she had to do some publicity things in America, and yes. people kept... Um, claiming that she was now writing things for teenagers, oh, <laughs> and she was very annoyed about this. She, in general, she doesn't. Silly seem teenager to, business, yeah. Yeah, she doesn't seem to have enjoyed um, publicity very much at all. And, no. and through, sort of throughout the correspondence, she sometimes she agrees to do interviews or, or you know photo shoots or, or other things, but she, it's not something she really she really. She likes. didn't do a lot of it, did she? And, no. and, and, and there is some speculation that the the whole disappearance incident. In 1928, uh, around that period, when she she left her car and reappeared in Harrogate after a massive man manhunt across the country to find her, she, the assumption was that she died or had been murdered or whatever. The pe- the papers went wild with it. Since from that point onwards, she withdrew from that publicity side of things. But at this stage in 1966, you know, uh, uh, at the age she is, despite the fact that she is the doyen. Her publishers, no doubt, are thinking we've got to get a younger demographic on board. This is—I'm trying to speculate, but that's often what you know. Um, somebody with—it's just getting a larger appeal, isn't it? Well, you know. Okay, so I'm drawing on my experience of the BBC, which has become—you know—it's hundredth birthday this year, and they're just terrified that no one under the age of thirty uses any of their services anymore, apart from the little ones watching, you know, CBBS, and they're desperate to you know, reach a new audience and keep things fresh. And I presume at this point the, the publisher is thinking, well, you know, how many more books is she going to produce? We better get something that's a bit more modern. Because, of course, culturally, 1966 is a period of enormous revolution and change and um, and she's sort of... And, and the teen revolution, the Beatles, are, you know, doing creative things and it's... Uh, and they're trying to fit her into that into that world a little bit. Perhaps she's feeling that she's being shoved towards a demographic she doesn't understand and doesn't want to write to. Yes, absolutely. But, I mean, she, she is very adamant that she, you know, she only, she is only ever and only really wants to, to write for adults. I think, I think a lot of these publicity decisions are being made sort of without first consulting her and, and also other, um, other things like sort of changes to titles or blurbs. Um, are happening without her knowledge or input, and, mm. and she wants her literary agents, Cork and and Harold Ober, to to consider her feelings more. And that's that's where she says the bit about not wanting to be um, a performing. And that's dog. a difficult position for for Cork to be in. To be in mm. a position where you're trying to keep your, the talent happy in in Agatha um, at a point in her life where she's probably going through a significant change in herself. I mean, she's an old woman now. Mm. You know, certainly a 76-year-old of that period. Were, were, they were older than the 76-year-olds of, of this generation, say. You know, they looked older, they behaved older, they clung on to uh, values that they grew up with in the Victorian period. So I think, she, you know, it, it, it speaks to me, at least, of somebody who was very uncomfortable with the culture and the world as it was beginning to be uh, for, her, for someone of her age. But um, interesting, isn't it? Really fascinating looking at her handwriting as well. Yeah, you can read it, yeah. yeah Far more so than mine. This, this one is actually really legible. That there, are, there were a couple that I had a look at that um, were a bit more difficult. But no, I, think, and I, I think it speaks a lot to her relationship with Edmund Cork at this point, that she can actually tell him these things. Exactly. She's, yeah. you know, she is really unhappy about, about 
the lack of control that she has over her works and how and how her novels being published. But you know, she knows she can tell him these things without you know with him, you know, being understanding and. And also now it's Dear Edmund it's, rather than Dear Ah, yeah, there's, there's so, that yeah. definite change. That yeah. relationship has changed. Mm. But it's interesting. I mean, also, she she was such a massive industry at this point in herself that, you know, this thing of control, you, you can't really retain that level of control. And, you know, you have to delegate, but she was uncomfortable doing mm. it. And we'll, we'll come back to this in the... Um, we're going to look at next. We're going to look at some some letters relating to um, adaptations for the stage and, mm, yeah. uh, and film adaptations. And there, I think that that sort of control over how her stories and her characters were sort of changed and um, yeah, that's that's something that she does really struggle with. Um, but it, it, it speaks a lot to how passionate she is about her works and her characters. And yes, um, they are, I suppose, a sort of extension of herself in a way. Another of our Hobeck authors, heavily influenced by Agatha Christie, is A.B. Morgan, or Alison Morgan, as we prefer to call her, or even Ali. Ali, to us. Yeah, absolutely. It was only when I was researching for my second novel that I discovered Agatha Christie had trained as an apothecary's assistant or a dispenser in a pharmacy. She had to do exams and everything, passed them in 1917 during the First World War. She also worked as a, she volunteered as a nurse in the First World War in a hospital in Torquay. Um, but her exceptional knowledge of poisons was the one thing that completely fascinated me uh, about Agatha Christie. Uh, I became a little bit obsessed about poisons myself, but nowhere near the amount of knowledge that, that she had did I ever achieve. Um, so I think it's the woman that fascinates me. I mean, her her uh, prolific writing and her, her skill in plotting, uh, you know, is, is is an accepted thing. But um, I'm really fascinated by what made her tick and what drove her on and this this incredible knowledge that she acquired about poisons. Um, she used strychnine in her very first novel. Good on you, that's what I say. Um, and The Pale Horse, I think, was where she used thallium. So, crikey, you've got to know what you're talking about. And she certainly did. So this is um, a proposed stage adaptation of Murder of the Vicarage at the Vicarage yes. of 1949. 24th of June, 1949, yeah. that's correct. So Christie is returning the script for a theatrical adaptation of Murder at the Vicarage to Edmund Cork. Um, she thinks a very good job has been made of it, and uh, she provides some of her personal criticism and comments about the script, um, including suggestions for, for poisons, yes. uh, fruits, food, and uh, the ending. I love that. I love the, the mentions of all the different... Yes, perhaps cyanide remote. Um, let's have a look. On the whole, I think a very good job has been made of it. It still has the rather too cosy novelish atmosphere of let's sit down and wonder who done it. But I, ne <laughs> I never could see how that could be avoided in this particular book. My main or general criticism is that there are complications which ought to be further simplified for the benefit of the 
the theatre audience. I love that. Yeah. She was really, really... She actually really, really enjoyed um, these sort of theatrical successes of her adaptations, sort of sort of late 1940s to 1950s. It, it really um, engaged a lot of her attention, and, and, and I think she was quite happy to change aspects of her stories for that, but she liked to have input, which you can really tell here. It's a... Uh, how long is it? Like four, I think, four, four or five pages. Yeah. Wow, um, yeah. She's... Uh, putting quite a lot of uh, detail. I like the emphasis on a particular word that she's underlined there. So, yeah, she's... she's exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's it. but, uh, you know, there's this talk about the, the poisons, as you mentioned, so... Shall I read this one? Yeah, absolutely. This one here. Suggest cyanide. Miss M always has it handy for wasp's nest, right time of year. More fun <laughs> to be got out of Miss M saying it was really providential. She had the cyanide handy. Audience might easily think she's a little mad and has done it. <laughs> yeah, great, right, isn't it? So I think I think originally because it says um, uh, weed killer won't do for her story. Everyone knows the symptoms of weed killer far too well, so she's yeah. suggesting cyanide instead. So she's actually sort of uh, yes, and, and and this is as you say, sort of she worked uh, as a dispenser in both world wars, and and this is where her knowledge of drugs as therapeutic agents and poisons really, yeah. um, it really, it really shows. And she, she got praise from the Royal College of Pharmacologists for her knowledge. Um, amazing! But I love this last line from that letter, if I may. Uh, definite. I do not like Miss Marple's fainting at the end. It is. It really is corny. Just done for the curtain, and absolutely untypical of her. No. That really cannot be. <laughs> That's brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I can, you can, uh, yeah, you can, you can imagine the actress who used to play <laughs> Miss Marple saying it, can't you? <laughs> a sort of indignation. That really cannot be. Well, that, that really is. That's pushing the boundaries of, uh, of an anger. Yeah, no, no, she's not happy at all there. That's fun. No, but I think, I mean, it's, you know, you know, four pages, a lot of comments, a lot of suggestions. But actually, I think in general, she's actually pretty happy with this one. Mm. Um, and <laughs> That's one she likes. <laughs> that is one she likes. We're now going to come to one that she didn't like so much. 1950, um, Towards Zero. Is that the one we're looking at next? That's the one, yes. Yeah. Um, oh, so, yes, 28th of February, 1950. Okay. Uh, so there's another letter from Accuracy to Edmund Cork um, regarding an adaptation of Towards Zero um, for the theatre. Um, so she's writing here, you'll see, she's writing from the British School yeah. of Archaeology in Baghdad in Iraq. Um, so on, you know, on one of on the... On tour with her husband. She was, yeah. Yeah. And so, he was a great archaeologist. So, mm-hmm. um, it's interesting that so many of her plots dug into those sort of archaeological... Yeah, area, she know. loved and, and she loved travelling. Egyptology. And, yeah. and she 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 spent quite a lot of time. You know, every time mm. she hit a road hurdle, it seemed to, you know, what I was picking up from her early life. Every time she hit a real life hurdle, she would travel and get her head clear and figure out. And that's it's how like she, you. Yeah, it is like me. <laughs> I'm always running away. Uh, not off to Iraq though. Not not recently. No, anyway. just down the road usually. Isn't that interesting? So, yeah, she's expressing her lack of enthusiasm about the proposed dramatisation of Towards Zero. Um, she pro- provides some criticisms and concerns over the, the twisting of the story because she is really not convinced that this, that, that this story suits the, the sort of um, angle that they're going for. Um, and she, she kind of point blank says she doesn't believe that the story makes good material for a play and she'd prefer it not to be dramatised at all. So she's really very unhappy with... This idea, you know, the idea of, of dramatizing this this particular story. I love this line about who done it. 
The Who Done It, with everyone suspected in turn and plenty of comic red herrings thrown in, really by now quite sickens me on stage. So that, I mean, that's, those are her signature mm. sort of early career things. There's, you know, this is you know, turning. It's interesting. It she's saying it doesn't work on the stage, and it's a different. Well, she's sick of seeing seeing the same type of thing. But I mean, I suppose it, by this point, it's become such a a sort of trope, really. Uh, the, her Agatha Christie adaptations. That's what people are going for. The, the thrill of trying to figure out which of all the suspects, I and mean, they're all, you know, in the frame, uh, it is. And yes, I mean, she was a great writer of. Um, class and manners as well I mean that's that's you know it's almost satirical in, in itself and I suppose that playwrights of a younger generation who were pr- presumably adapting these were playing up those aspects you know the fustiness of English country life um, she doesn't like that approach perhaps um, yes I'm not I'm not sure she doesn't quite uh, I don't think she quite she doesn't says quite that. sort of say yeah. that but but this, yeah. this quote about, um, so she's specifically referring to Towards Zero. Frankly, as you know, I have never seen Towards Zero as good material for a play. Its point is not suspicion on everybody, but suspicion and everyone pointing, everything pointing towards the incrimination of one person and rescue of that victim at the moment when she seems to be hopelessly doomed. But if fun and thrills are wanted, go to some other of my 50 offspring. Brilliant. <laughs> Which is obviously she's referring to her novels there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just 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 dropping the isn't that that's a little mic drop <laughs> in modern parlance, isn't it? You know, so just fifty. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> wow, uh, she'd have been. F- I, I'm just trying to figure out where we put her in her pantheon. If she was one of our authors, would she be the most troublesome? No, no, not troublesome. <laughs> but <laughs> but she'd be bringing the big bucks in, so we would be we'd be. Delighted, but yes, of course, yes. But it'd be an interesting relationship trying to sort of transpose that now. So, what are we moving on to now? Uh, now, moving on to two letters that yeah. relate um, to film adaptations. Ah, um, or, or one particular proposed film adaptation of Murder Ahoy um, that she wasn't, she, she really wasn't very happy with. And yeah, they are. You, you can really tell she is very... She is quite upset, I think. Um, so going back to 1964 here. Yeah. And... Uh, oh, actually, we're jumping forward again. Um, I'm trying to remember where we were in the timeline. But... So this is an MGM... Pro- right, no. This, so this is an MGM proposed script of Murder Ahoy. Uh, yes. So this first one... So it's uh, dated 25th of March, 1964. It's another... Typescript, a little, a little, mm, very small, yeah. Um, letter uh, addressed to dear Edmund. So yeah, a letter from Agatha Christie to Edmund Cork, um, and it it um, regards the MGM script of Murder Ahoy and um, and the distortion of her plots and characters in their adaptation. So she sort of expresses her dismay at the script and registers what she calls a formal protest against the distortion of her plots and characters. Um, she is especially upset about um, the fact that, um, for some reason, although Murder Ahoy was uh, originally she wrote it as a Poirot novel, right. they've tried to make it um, a Marvel. Into, <laughs> so they put Miss Marvel into the oh. in, into what what should have been um, Poirot's character. And oh, she also describes in this one actually as uh, Miss Marvel as being one of her one of her favourite creations. And she's praising Margaret Rutherford, who is the, the you know the archetypal screen. Miss Marple, uh, you remember 
Margaret Rutherford. She, yeah, did, yeah. she also did the definitive Elizabeth mm. I, didn't she? The, um, <laughs> earlier in her career, she's. I mean, I one of the, one of those sort of actresses who ate the screen. Basically, no one else got a look in when she was on it. Mm. I mean, I, th- I think um, a, a lot of people agree that that uh, Margaret Rutherford wasn't really very much like the Miss Marple that Christie had written, and and, and Christie herself sort of says it um, here. She says. Margaret Rutherford, though not much like Miss Marple, gave a most enjoyable performance um, in Murder, she said. Um, so, so, so there, there she's quite lenient. So despite, no, you know, despite Margaret Rutherford not being very much like, you know, physically and perhaps, I don't know, um, personality-wise, not very much like Miss Marple, um, she actually, she, she likes her, she likes her performance, but um, everything else. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you know, you cannot expect me to agree to the complete distortion of one of my favourite creations, and therefore I am registering this formal protest. Yeah, that's quite strong, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's up there. That's up there. How did this resolve? I mean, mm, I mean, so did they make it, or did that get shelved because of mm. her objections? I don't know. I mean, mm. I, I don't remember the, the film, so... Mm. So this is 1964, um, and in 1960, a deal was made with the American media company... Uh, MGM for $75,000 um, for the film and television rights to 40 properties. Wow. Um, but yeah, Christie was just so unhappy <laughs> with the films and, you know, she, she really tried to get, them, um, to get them stopped because they had so little resemblance to her original stories. So actually in 1965, MGM decided not to schedule any more cinema films based on Christie's novels. So That's a lot of money for that period, mm. but... Um, you know, it's hard to put into terms of what that would be now, but, you know, we're talking millions, aren't we? Um, but nonetheless, that lack of creative control, you know, that she'd signed over. This is You hear this a lot from authors who sign over their rights and have no control over mm. how they turn out. Interesting, you know, even as recently as um, this year, you look at Lee Child, who signed over the rights to some of his Reacher books and Tom Cruise acted in it. And because the fans hated it so much... He binned off Tim, Tom, Tom Cruise, refused to allow any more films to be made, and they've made a TV series much more in the image of the books that he mm-hmm. had in the first place. And he's now executive producer on them. So he's retained control. But it's obviously a, a, a common that's, issue. But that's the power of the readers, isn't it? If the readers say, you haven't done it right, and it has that weight that means that they stop it and then... Well, the principal issue, of course, Tom Cruise being five foot seven, <laughs> and Jack Reach is six foot four, <laughs> it, it, was a, it was a scale issue. You couldn't get past it. Interesting, isn't it? Um, yeah, so it really, really did vex. I mean, she, you know, you read these and you think, okay, this is the business side of life, but does she have time to enjoy herself? Because clearly so many things about managing her estate and her work, you know, they, she had so many things that irked her. And um, this feeling of lack of control is, is absolutely central to, to everything we're reading here, really. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Uh, she writes, it was complete news to me and it horrified and upset me more than I can say. And you can, you can really tell that yeah. she is, you know, she's, I think this is one of the, the, the points in her career where she really was, she, she was really very upset with what was happening. Um, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's quite, quite powerful and, is, and actually yeah. quite painful to watch because, yeah. you know... Uh, yeah, you can always, you can feel the anxiety... Oh, definitely the anxiety, the powerlessness. And I suppose that's something, you know, as an author, you have the power initially. I mean, you know, it depends what approach you take. If you're a plotter 
and you decide exactly how things are going to work out and how the characters are going to behave with each other, then that's one thing you have control in that fashion. But often the characters will tell you how to write. But I think even in that case, when you're not a plotter and the characters are telling you where the story goes, they're still your babies, aren't they? And they're still well, once it's so published, emotionally attached to them. Once it's 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 published and it's you know gone through all this sort of the, the earlier stuff we were looking at and perhaps changes here and clarifications there. Um, yeah, you know, you've gone to so much trouble to do it. You don't really want people just going in and making, uh, you know, a Poirot story into a Marple story. And <laughs> amazing, amazing. See, this is actually a second letter. Um, it's uh, dated 11th of April 1964, another typescript letter um, from, from Agatha Christie, this time to Larry Bachman, who is uh, at MGM. The MGM, yeah. Um, once again, expressing her dismay at the script. Um, and she and she 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 states that she she does not believe he was right to act as he did. So from the letter, um, it is me. It is to me a matter of an author's integrity to have one's character incorporated in in somebody else's film seems to be monstrous and highly unethical. I do not see how you can expect me to feel anything but deep resentment at your high-handed action or to pretend otherwise, and I still feel it questionable that you really have the right to act as you have done. I mean, that's very passionate and powerful, isn't it? But, you know, those films, subsequent films, later ones, we're talking about Death on the Nile, brought her enormous sums of money too I would presume certainly they would have driven the, the sales of the books it's hard for me to quantify because I mean you know the, the, the figure that's banded around now is that Agatha Christie has sold two billion books beaten only by Shakespeare and the Bible um, but when we're looking at these letters you know, I'm trying to figure out at what stage were you know was this the 400 million copy or was it the 500th million <laughs> you know has, has since her death the, the books taken off uh, because of the the, the film Adaptations. I mean, those those films were mega, the ones with Peter Ustinov and the who's who of the greats of Hollywood at the time. So, um, you know, did, I, is it possible to sort of t- detect from these letters that she could enjoy her money? I know that, you know, she'd obviously was hit very hard by these tax, tax disputes in the middle of her career. But by this point, that's not really so much of a concern um she's got all these properties but you know is she able to sort of have the freedom to enjoy the life she wanted i don't know i mean it's 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 not not clear to me no but i mean yeah she was clearly very busy dealing with all this as well yeah so how did that affect her creativity that's a good good point i mean how do you get yourself into a state from writing a letter like that to becoming you know in a state where you can write your next novel so it's interesting. Have we got anything else to uh, to draw on, or are we? Um, so th- those are the film adaptations. So mm-hmm. the, the very last thing I'd like to show you is um, uh, uh, is a is a letter in response to a fan. Ah, right, um, yeah. So we're now in 1970. Yes, um, but yeah, in, in response to your question, I mean, I I think because this collection relates to her literary estate. Um, we are mostly getting, it, you, know, so, you know, some some letters are of the personal nature, but it is mostly about about her sort of um, uh, sort of literary matter. So we're not really getting so much about her personal life. No. Um, but occasionally, but I think I think um, you know she she was quite private. She enjoyed spending time with her family, uh, traveling. Um, I think, and, and and she really liked going to the theatre actually. So mm. I think. I think I think she did. You know, yeah. she did enjoy some leisure time. <laughs> well, I, I also, I mean, I read somewhere that she was a great open water swimmer 
Uh, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So she was ahead of the trend on that one. Um, so this letter is from a Japanese fan. Oh, excellent. Mm. And I, th- I think that really shows the, the, the global reach of her, of her stories. And um, uh, throughout the collection, we've got um, letters from fans. So um, before 1963, they're sort of filed within the general correspondence. Afterwards, they have their own separate folder. So she received a lot of... Um, Correspondence from fans, you know, asking questions or just or just telling her, you know, we really, yeah, we really yeah. like you, and we really like. Got so story. much trouble to fill in all the blanks that this guy is asking about. It's extraordinary. It's not a sort of Miss Christie would like to thank you for your correspondence and your continued support of her work or something. It's not that at all. This is very, very personal and very, very direct to the to the writer. Yeah, it's a really, um, it's a really, really warm letter that answers a series of questions um, about the. It, it, particularly about the character of Miss Marple, uh, about what sort of inspired the character of Miss Marple, um, her hobbies. There's a little paragraph that I quite like about her handwriting, which I've I've included because, you know, because what I was saying about her handwriting isn't always the easiest to read. And it's really nice that actually Christy Christy actually agrees with that. Do you want to read that that middle paragraph? So she says, My handwriting is not spiky and spidery in a way a good many of my elderly relations wrote. But on the other hand, it is over-large, seldom underlined, and frankly, rather illegible to read. Well, that's honest. And I love the... um, Here's an insight for... um, how she saw herself within her own books. So the very last paragraph that you've, you've highlighted here, Mrs. Ariadne Oliver, who appears in some of my other books, has a certain affinity to myself, perhaps partly because I have made her a detective writer. So she has some of my problems and has some of my ideas about them. <laughs> so I think she, she got questions a lot about, about um, whether Miss Marple is based on, on herself. Um, and she absolutely refutes this. She says, no, we are... We are completely different," she says. Um, "You know, there's there's no particular model for Miss Marple. Marple. Um, some of her remarks and points of views are reminiscent of my own two grandmothers yes. and of their friends and acquaintances whom I knew in my youth. But she is not in the least like me, and her life is entirely different." And some people have said that she's more like her own mother in the sense mm. that her mother had a good read on people, and that's one of the key skills that Miss Marple always you know relies on. But um, it's interesting that she's drawing on her grandmother. So her grandmothers, you know, would have been grand uh, Victorian ladies um, and all of those values. It's interesting because, you know, I think back to my own um, uh, grandma Gabs, we used to call her. And she was born in uh, 1897. So she's seven years younger than Agatha Christie. And she had gone through a really hard childhood, you know, basically abandoned by her parents, put into an English boarding school aged four and um she had a absolutely forensic um grip on manners she was you know we were (laughs) sunday dinners we weren't allowed to sit down for dinner unless we'd had our hands inspected for any we'd be scrubbing for 20 minutes and we'd get a chocolate bar if we um if we produced immaculate hands um, stuff like that. Well, it, similar for me. I remember my grandma saying, "You know, you must put your knife and fork against each other. They're, they're talking to each other, aren't they? They're not. They haven't fallen out. They have to go elbows off the table as well." Was a big. Oh one. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that was a no-no. But, but even in the in the the mores and the, um, you know, she her, her she had this amazing picture that she'd drawn when she was quite young of Lord Kitchener. Um, you know, she, the, these were women of empire of you know britain being the top dog and all of the restrictions that women were put through in terms of how they should behave and 
Uh, she would always tell me, you know, we should be seen as children and not heard and all this sort of stuff. She absolutely... She, yeah, I haven't asked you a question, so do not speak and all this sort of stuff. It was extraordinary. And also, we had to behave better on a Sunday. Oh, yeah. And there were certain things you were expected to pursue, like reading or drawing, nice quiet pursuits on a Sunday. Yes, absolutely. Uh, anyway, we're sort of digress. This is the nature of our podcast, <laughs> where things just pop into our heads and we just say it. But no, that uh, is interesting, isn't it? And she also says... I can, I can only tell you that Miss Marple does not exist in the flesh and never has. She is entirely a creation of my brain. I have developed her slowly, adding a few characteristics from time to time. She is entirely a person in her own right, not anyone seen, observed or noticed. She was very adamant about that, wasn't she? That she and I think it's also interesting what she says about that she's developed her over time. And I think earlier in the letter she says, um, um, I've never thought very much about her childhood. So... So she's she's a writer who sort of uh, it seems to develop her characters across, you know, the stories rather than, you know, trying to come up with a, a whole sort of biography before yes. she starts writing them. She's actually always adding little bits in every novel. Um, it's, it's, yeah, I, I don't I don't know how common that is with other writers. No, but I think I think quite a lot of writers will will put it all out on paper. You know, they'll say, okay, they had this at the childhood and they they did this and then they this yeah. happened when they were five and this happened when they were twelve. You know the Bap it out in quite big detail. There are plenty of books that will tell you that's what you've got to do. Mm. Spend hours and hours writing pages and pages of character notes. But actually, you know, I'm not from that school at all, as you know. No, uh, no. Very much sort of pops up. Um, and yeah, I, you know, why not? I mean, she was writing these characters for decades. She had to have something fresh because she knew the audience wanted something a little bit fresh, something that they were going to notice and go, ooh, didn't know that about so and so. I think, you know, in contrast to. The letters that we were just looking at about um, about the films, where where really the essence of the character was being completely distorted, she wanted to keep that essence, but actually, sort of, you know, she was quite happy to develop the characters over time, adding adding new little uh, information. Yeah, those little nuggets, the Easter eggs, as we would call it now, uh, for the readers. Well, that's a, that's a good lesson, and I think good way to to, to, to sort of conclude our, our our look at these letters, which has been wonderful, because. You know, we encourage our writers to write series because that's what people tend to want. They get into a character, they want to read more and more about them, and they want those little drop-ins rather than the full fleshed-out character mm. straight away. But it's been, it's been brilliant, hasn't it? It's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. I want to stay here for a couple of hours and look at everything. <laughs> well, sadly, we, we, we don't have time for that. But um, Annie Price, thank you so much for the time that you've given us and the amount of time and care you've to draw these wonderful letters to our attention. You're extremely welcome. Thank you for having me. But no, I just I just want to say that um, you know all these all these letters uh, they are here at Exeter, but they are available um, for everyone. So so anyone who would like to look at at them can uh, can make an appointment and come and see our reading room and and come and see these wonderful letters. Amazing, amazing. Thank you. Agatha Christie's influence across crime writing is profound. It is huge. And it continues to influence our Hoback writers, as Sue Shepherd explains. I read all of the Agatha Christie novels um, when I was in my early 20s, late teens, and it was my first experience of reading crime. 
I think probably Agatha Christie's a lot of people's first experience of reading crime. It's not too graphic. It's fairly, it's like a gentle way into crime. Um, but what I love about Agatha Christie novels is, she, well, she's the master of the red herring because you, you, you never quite know who did it until the end. Um, and whether it was a Miss Marple or a Hercule Poirot, you know, the, you didn't know until that very final bit where they sum up and tell you who the killer is. And I think I was quite inspired to write Suspense because of reading Agatha Christie, because I loved the way she led the reader down certain paths and then at the end you found, oh, no, that was a red herring too. And I, I really felt that I wanted to try and do that when I wrote my first a suspense novel, Swindled. Um, it's it's obviously different, it's slightly more modern uh, than than Agatha Christie, but it has a similar feel to it, I think, and I do think that I was inspired by her, and I was definitely sort of influenced. You can see the influences in the book. In fact, when the book was published and I began to get reviews, it was called A a Cosy Mystery, and um, I thought, yeah, I'll I'll take that. I'm, I'm happy with that. I think, actually, there's even a review where I'm compared to the Queen of Crime, but I might just be imagining that but I think so anyway um but definitely I was influenced by her I like the way she looks at her relationships of all of her characters and kind of has some stories within the story they're definitely sort of almost like a genre all of their own in Agatha Christie um you kind of if you say this is like an Agatha Christie novel people know exactly what sort of book it's going to be. They know that there's going to be lots of twists and turns and there's going to be red herrings and that it's all going to be tied up at the end. Um, I think I love leaving it to the very last minute. I like to have that one little thing that you say at the very end of the book. Oh, by the way, I don't know if you realise, but blah, blah, blah. And uh, I think that's that's quite similar to her as well. Um, they're, they're great books. And and I, I, I love them. They stand the test of time and um they're just you can always just pick one up for to read in an afternoon for comfort. I think that visit to the special collection of Agatha Christie's gonna stay with us a long time. Absolutely. I mean I've been thinking about it all weekend. It was and I, w- I really didn't know what to expect and I I personally have an interest in old objects and and being able to interpret things about a person or about history through the objects that they leave behind. So for me, it was was absolutely fascinating. And just seeing little details such as hand-corrected text in the typed letters or little notes or the way her signature changed on different letters and the way she addressed her agent as her relationship with him changed became more familiar. You know, it, it was... Dear Mr. Cork at the beginning, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, so, uh, just fascinating. I could have spent hours there if we, if we had the time. Yeah, if we'd had the time. But um, we hope that, you know, uh, we'd like to thank, of course, Annie for her, uh, you know, access to the papers and the, the work she put in for us and to um, the uh, bodies behind Agatha Christie for giving us permission to uh, to quote some of those letters uh, but it's fascinating i mean there's so much to be gained here you can go down to uh, to greenway now it's a national trust property which was her holiday home on the on the dart near dartmouth um and 
she used to invite her creative friends to stay there and they kept some of their collections there so that's that's a fascinating place beautiful spot which we we didn't manage this weekend but something for to yeah, store up we'll for the do future that absolutely and you know i think it's inspired me to go and dig out some agatha christie books and and you know there's so much to be learned from it you know the power of a red herring <laughs> she really <laughs> understood that but the amount of care she put into every nuance of each of her books and you'd think that given that she she wrote 80 pieces of of, of, of fiction um mostly novels some plays as we know uh and short stories the care i mean it was, she had a long career she worked till she died really mm. but nonetheless that is still the prolific rate of work and she spent so much time getting every single detail right. That's very, very clear from those letters. I mean, the impression I got from the letters and also just our, our chat with Annie was that she, she was actually, she was a workaholic. She couldn't stop. I mean, yes, she did have leisure time as well, but she, like you were saying about the sort of drive, the money drive, that drove her and drove her and drove her because she just wanted that security. But, she, and, you know, mm. it, and she was, she was a workaholic, but divided her work and leisure time appropriately in her mind i think yeah i mean it was, it's easy to forget but she was one of the first people from from england to learn how to stand up surf believe it i or not. never knew that yeah, absolutely now, that is a great fact it is it is there are <laughs> pictures of her with a long board she learned to surf i think it was in hawaii possibly california but anyway certainly on one of her world trips she taught herself how to to, to stand up surf uh and she kept she did that you know into her later years so she, you know, I, I mentioned her open water swimming uh, affection, you know, from growing up in Torbay and swimming in the sea and then the rivers nearby. And, you know, it is such a beautiful county. And we're looking at one of the most, one of those iconic spots, you know, the River X and the estuary of the X as we go down towards Exmouth on one side and Dawlish on the other is stunning. And it is. I don't think we really appreciated it as much as we I mean I think I did but not to the extent I could have as a student when we were here uh, you know both of us had four years here at Exeter I mean yeah certainly for me because I didn't have a car so I didn't travel much out of Exeter if, if I did it was with someone who you know had a car but just sat here looking for, with my artist's eye it's just the colours are amazing so you mentioned the, the clearing of the sky so there's this deep um, yellow light and then you've got uh, the sort of browns of the grass, the greens and the greys of the undulating Devonshire hills. Yes, yes. And then the, even the water's really calm mm-hmm. and just reflecting the sky. It's beautiful. Yeah, it really is a stunning spot. And Topsham is one of my favourite places on the planet. And, you know, it's not disappointed us this weekend. No, we've fallen in love with it. I think we've sort of, um, yeah. as we always do, flirted with the idea of living here. Yeah, fat chance <laughs> at the moment. But someone who does live in Devon and is originally from Cornwall, is our very own Terry Nixon, or R.D. Nixon. Absolutely, yes. And we, we were hoping to meet with um, Terry this weekend, but unfortunately she's gone to the other side of the country for a wedding. Yeah, she, she is. Um, but she, she's based in Plymouth, and she has, uh, this week, publishing uh, with us Fair Game, the second of the uh, uh, Clifford and Mackenzie series. Uh, it's just fantastic. Uh, great book. And uh, she, well, we're given a, a few minutes to introduce you to the book, and a few other things that we threw her, including a random question, I believe. <laughs> Which she handled very well. Hi, this is R.D. Nixon, also known as Terry, and I've been sent some questions by Adrian and Rebecca, so here goes. I'll do my best. 
Okay, so the first question is, in a few sentences, tell us a little bit about the second book in the Clifford Mackenzie crime series, Fair Game. So Fair Game, uh, it picks up a couple of months after the first book, uh, which is Crossfire, left off. <clears throat> There's a, a brand new murder, a, a, a right nasty piece of work, but he's got a really deeply loyal family. So when Maddie Clifford and Paul Mackenzie become involved, they, they find it, it hits very, very close to home. And it also rakes up some unfinished business from their previous case. Um, so while the murder in this book is a standalone case, there are some familiar characters from the previous book who've got their own things going on and, um, and pretty soon you realise they're on a collision course. Question the second. Uh, which do you find harder, writing the first book in a new series when you're establishing new characters and introducing readers to a new world, or subsequent books with the pressure of meeting expectations based on the first book. They, they're they equally hard, but I think for different reasons. I tend to like quite a large cast of characters in my books, just as you get in a TV show. So so if one of them pokes their head round the door in book one and, and looks as if they've got something interesting to say, I either kill them off and let the investigation uncover their story, or I let them in. And, um, and let them talk, then, of course, you have to follow up and make them earn their way. So in the subsequent books, you have to ensure it all makes sense. And if you go back over it, you can piece it all together. So I think that's as much of a challenge as making sure they pay their way in the first book. But luckily, I do enjoy your challenge. Next question. <laughs> when you're writing, do your characters ever change the direction of the story away from what you originally planned? Oh, yes, all the time. They rarely do as I expect them to do. I, I probably said before um, in interviews that I was writing this one story um, and this guy just dropped somebody off at at the airport, walked back to his car, found someone leaning on the car. Now, I didn't have the faintest idea who that person was. They were dressed very oddly and they were behaving really badly. <laughs> I had no clue who it was. Um, um, and as it turned out, it was kind of the overarching villain of the entire series. So that was quite lucky. Um, and one, I was just really trying to get rid of one character because I move her out of the way because she was just not really, as I say before, she's not really paying her way. So um, this was my um, historical series. So I sent her off to become an ambulance driver uh, on the front. And um, I kind of got interested in what she was doing and I ended up writing two more books based on her and her colleague doing ambulance driving on the western front um so yeah that, that that really made a difference to the way that whole series went okay next uh there's a third book in the series to come but do you envisage the series going beyond that um i think because because my books tend to be quite heavily populated they they have a feeling almost of a soap but with a heavy focus on crime um and there'll always be something to do for Clifford Mackenzie to get their teeth into so I'd like to think there are more stories for them in the future I mean there are bound to be um so but whether I'll take a break and write something else in between I'm not sure so we'll just have to see where we are at the end of book three <laughs> and this is the one Rebecca's random question uh most obscure celebrity connection um not just someone you've met but something that you really can't claim as a claim to fame right well yeah I suppose um, my parents lived and worked for years on various big hunting estates in the Highlands, which is obviously where I get my ideas from for the books. Um, they were 
they lived at Dunmaglass and, and Nocky, which are both quite well known. Um, and they've always had interesting guests, including royalty. Um, and I suppose, um, obscurely, one of the family they worked for recently appeared on TV show Keeping Up With The Aristocrats. So it was quite funny watching that and knowing a bit about him. Um, actually, that same family um, owned and chaired Wolverhampton Wanderers at the time, and my brother was absolutely obsessed with them. And they offered him the use of the royal box whenever he wanted it, but he was just too nervous to ask, so he never took them up on it, which is a shame. Um, yeah, I, I, I was going to tell a story about how Prince Michael of Kent's undercrackers ended up in my family, but um, decided against it because, you know, royalty, underwear, not great. Um, so that's my unwarranted and obscure claim to fame. Thank you very much. R.D. Nixon, Terry Nixon, uh, contributing to the Hobcast Book Show. Uh, well, we'll wrap it up here because um, it's... We'd better get going, haven't we? We, we need to get back to uh, Hobeck Towers and, and the cat. But um, you know, we'd like to thank uh, Annie Price and the Special Collections of Exeter University, who very kindly gave us their time this week. Uh, we'd like to thank our authors for reflecting on their... Um, the impact of Agatha Christie on their work and of course R.D. Nixon as we, we've already mentioned but we'd like to thank you for spending some time with us uh, on this sort of pilgrimage to look at one aspect of the life of Agatha Christie I'd also like to thank the odd seagull for squawking during this podcast yeah it gives, it gives it a little bit of uh, atmosphere <laughs> but you know Devon we salute you you still are oh, the most marvellous county yeah always and uh, thank you for joining us so just reminds, uh, remains for me to say um, please take a look at our website. We uh, are on the verge of announcing another new author. We, are, we actually announced one last week in Rachel Sargent, which was fantastic. Uh, we're delighted to have her alongside us uh, at Hobeck, but we have another new signing very, very soon. So keep your eyes peeled for that at www.hobeck.net. Don't forget, please, to subscribe to this podcast, The Hobcast Book Show. It's every Monday. And we would love you to subscribe and uh, stay with us for our journey. Um, who are we speaking to next week? Do you remember? I actually cannot remember. We've got somebody booked in. Yeah, we have. Neither of us can <laughs> so remember. we'll leave that as a surprise. <laughs> okay, well, it will be a surprise. But anyway, join us again next week for the Hobcast Book Show. But from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. Thank you so much for joining us and have a wonderful and uh, Christy filled creative week. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Spirit.